This is Macro Horizons, episode 61. Are we there yet? Presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of March 23rd. And as a reminder, social isolation isn't just for rate strategists anymore. views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. This past week saw a lot of dramatic moves from monetary policy and government officials alike. We saw an emergency rate cut down to the effective lower bound by the Fed, the reintroduction of quantitative easing, and some remarkably choppy price action in the treasury market. One of the characteristics of the current trading environment is a notable absence of liquidity in the treasury market. That isn't a typical dynamic, particularly not in a traditional flight to quality mode. The way this has manifested itself is by large bid offer spreads, but more compellingly by the outright moves that we have seen in 10 and 30 year yields. Given the price action in equities, we would have anticipated that treasuries would have drifted lower in yields, but in fact, we saw the exact opposite. The curve re-steepening makes sense given the Fed's actions, but the fact that 10-year yields reach 125 after being as low as 31 basis points just a week ago points to significant strain in one of the markets that is generally considered to be the most liquid in the world. Liquidity stress hasn't been limited to the treasury market. That's also become evident given the bid-ask spreads across a variety of credit products and even in equities. The gapping lower of the price action speaks to the panic nature of the move. The Fed, having cut rates to zero on a Sunday, decided not to conduct their FOMC meeting on Wednesday. So that led the treasury market to trade off of the new incoming programs. We do have another effort to support the commercial paper market from the Fed, as well as to provide support for money market accounts. One of the most defining characteristics on the policy front has been an effort to go through almost the entire financial crisis playbook in very short order. Now, this clearly reflects the severity of the risks associated with the coronavirus, but it also does beg the question, now that the Fed has done everything it did during the financial crisis, what's next? There has been a lot of chatter about the potential for the Fed to buy corporate bonds. Now, that's a shift that would require an act of Congress. However, in the current environment, an act of Congress to expand what would qualify in terms of QE seems very doable. Keep in mind that the White House and Congress are currently in the process of cobbling together a fiscal stimulus deal of a trillion plus, which will help to offset some of the economic downside, although at the end of the day, 
the U.S. is headed for a recession, and whether it's V-shaped or U-shaped, there will be a significant rise in unemployment, and that will have ramifications for the pace of consumption going forward. Frankly, this is a defining moment for the U.S. economy, and the severity of the drop in production over the course of the next two quarters will set the stage or raise the bar for a swift economic recovery. So, as an astute listener recently inquired, is this the Spanish flu or the Great Depression? Well, that's a fantastic question. And the fact of the matter is, I don't think we're to Great Depression levels yet. And whether or not it ultimately ends up being the Spanish flu remains to be seen. However, unlike during those two periods, the world is far more interconnected in terms of economic activity, far more interconnected in terms of travel, trade, etc. And at the same time, there's a different level of information flow whether it's simply the major news outlets or social media, at the end of the day, there has been far more preparation, far more efforts made to slow the progression of the coronavirus. This was not the case during the Spanish flu, and it was not the case during the Great Depression in terms of the response from central banks and the federal government. We've seen something which I characterize as surprising, and that is that the Fed and the federal government have really gone through the entire financial crisis playbook in about a month. Whereas previously, all of the endeavors from cutting rates to zero to contemplating taking ownership stakes in some of the firms that they bail out took a year plus. What this leads me to conclude is we'll probably end up somewhere between Y2K, which was the economic Armageddon that never was, and what we saw during the financial crisis. So what does that mean in practical terms? We're going to see a significant recession in the first half of the year. The best we can hope for, recall hope is not a strategy, is that the second half of the year sees a significant rebound in economic activity. Whether that V-shaped recovery is enough to keep what has been a historically strong employment market in place remains to be seen. There will be significant job losses, but a lot of those job losses will eventually be reversed once the domestic economy reopens for business. The question then quickly becomes, how long are we going to be closed? And circling back to the question of Spanish flu versus Great Depression, another thing that I've been thinking about is how does the fact that technology now allows people to work remotely impact the ultimate fallout of the virus? Yes, the service sector and travel industries are going to be hit and arguably are already being hit extremely hard from this crisis. But in addition to the globalization of the economy, we've also achieved advancements in technology that allow some forms of production to continue, even if it is from the comfort of one's own home. For example, podcast production. See what I did there? That said, Ben, I don't know that all of that is reason for gross optimism. Fair enough. We'll be able to sustain a higher level of output and higher standard of social living than we would have if this had occurred back in 1918, but we're also starting from a substantially higher level. When considering some of the economic hits of this, you know, who knows what Q2 is going to be, but I've seen estimates that put it around negative 10, negative 20% annualized GDP loss. Call that a 5% quarterly drop. With the U.S. economy somewhere around $20 trillion, 5% is $1 trillion. So in theory, 
some of these trillion-dollar stimulus packages could just reset that aggregate demand, but it's actually not that simple, and it largely has to do with the multiplier effect. And you're spot on that it depends on how long things are going to get shut down, but it also depends on how impactful a regular predictable paycheck will be versus a one-off check in the mail from the IRS when you don't know if anything more will be coming. Behavior is very different in those two scenarios, and the possibility that we'll be staring down a prolonged period without the sharp V-shaped recovery you might see after something like a hurricane is still very real. John, and I think you make a very good point, and that is behavior is going to change in the wake of the coronavirus, whether it's behavior of the investment community. I think people will certainly look at equities with a renewed degree of scrutiny because the Fed, despite all of their efforts, hasn't been able to really support the stock market the way that the Powell put would have previously implied. More importantly, we're seeing a transition, as you pointed out, Ben, to a work-from-home economy, which it's not entirely clear that all of that is going to be reversed once the coronavirus runs its course. It's reasonable to expect that the new workforce habits have a staying power of their own. One of the other aspects of this entire episode that has me particularly concerned is that the recession isn't going to hit all participants equally. So the service sector and some of the lower wage jobs will be the first to go, and we're already starting to see that. And this will further serve to increase the wealth gap and the disparity within the U.S., which has political ramifications to be sure, and will presumably inform the November election process. The full drop in income is not going to be easily replaced. Just looking at the Senate package that McConnell's been putting forward, he's proposing direct payments of $1,200 to Americans making less than $75,000 and then a little bit of a taper there up into the $99,000 level. When you think about the scale of $1,200 of $75,000, that could be replacing as little as 2% of annual income. In other words, this is a stopgap. This is another one of those half measures, but it's not going to fully rectify the situation. Moreover, research from the Fed as of a few quarters ago showed that something like 40% of American households couldn't withstand a surprise $400 charge without having to dig into savings, withdraw from 401ks, or something to that effect. This is a pretty dramatic consequence for the middle class of the United States, and once the financial crisis dies down, by which I mean liquidity, price dislocations, general animal spirits— Households are going to have taken a remarkable step backwards, and it's going to take a really long time to heal. Now, that doesn't mean that we won't see a couple quarters of strong growth as early as Q3, maybe delayed past that, but this is going to be a long process in order to get out of. The risk is that going into all of this, the U.S. economy was already rather exposed. We've talked ad nauseum about the lack of monetary policy firepower, but we also had trillion-dollar fiscal deficits before any of this started. So you combine everything, and between monetary and fiscal, they're going to throw everything they can at this problem, and it still might not be enough to push against this tidal wave of this external shock hitting the economy right now. And to a large extent, John, you make a very good point that there is going to be a great deal of borrowing that needs to be done to fund the spending, to fund the deficit. Because let us not forget, in any recession, we also see a significant decline in tax receipts. And so a great deal of treasury issuance goes without saying. We continue to anticipate the bulk of that, at least over the 
course of the next few quarters will be concentrated in the bill market. Although there has been chatter once again about seeing a 50-year treasury or a 25-year treasury introduced to fund some of the fiscal stimulus efforts. That is in part what played out over the course of the last week in terms of the backup in 10- and 30-year yields. And as we've been on about recently, it's also largely a liquidity story as well. We'd like to think that there is an acknowledgement that the amount of stimulus being thrown into the system at this moment will ultimately be inflationary. However, if we look at break-evens and some of the more traditional measures of inflation expectations, we see that those are still at or near the bottom. Said differently, if and when the inflationary aspect of the story drives the trading dynamic, we would expect the curve to steepen out even further. Two's tens did manage to make it to effectively 80 basis points, which is consistent with our target of 100 basis points in two's tens. However, as has been the theme throughout the course of the last couple of weeks, it's not going to be a direct shot. It will be a choppy move to get there if and when we see it. On your note about break-evens being very low, I'm not taking that seriously as a rate of inflation expectations. Yes, the fall in crude oil prices will feed through as a deflationary impulse to headline, but if you look at 10-year break-evens right now, they're below 60 basis points. I don't think that's a reasonable expectation, and instead, that more reflects dislocation and illiquidity in the tips market. Real yields right now at the 5 and 10-year space are, call it, 40 basis points or so. They should be negative. And at this point, at least in the Treasury market, there's a liquidity discount built into the tips market that makes them a screaming buy for anyone who has the capacity to hold that position through this illiquid period. This isn't to say that tips might not cheapen further if liquidity further deteriorates, but any real yield at the five or 10-year sector that's frankly even positive should be pretty attractive right now. That dislocation in the tips market distorts break-evens and is one of the reasons why we need to consider both market-based measures of inflation compensation and expectations, i.e. break-evens, as well as surveys. So those surveys from the Survey of Professional Forecasters, University of Michigan, street estimates in the Fed are going to be very important right now because we're not getting an accurate or realistic metric out of the tips market. Well, it is difficult to argue that there's a great deal of inflation on the horizon with crude oil at $20 a barrel. But to your point, the notion that we're about to enter a deflationary spiral doesn't resonate with the realities of what we're seeing in terms of the other price action and broader sentiment. Nonetheless, the negative impulse from the wealth effect will certainly curtail consumption into the end of the year. At a certain point, just like a lot of other asset classes, it's a matter of trying to catch the proverbial knife in tips. And speaking of timing the bottom, a question for both of you, I guess, is are we starting to see the point where the market is maybe trying to time the bottom in the stock market? We're now back to levels not seen since February 2017, and at roughly 30% off the all-time highs. Do we think that a moment is coming where risk-on may at least start to return? Eventually, it will have to. That kind of goes without saying. The implicit question, and I think it's a very good one, Ben, is have we priced in 
enough downside at current levels to reflect expectations for the U.S. economy to be effectively shut down for a period of time? And if so, is this the opportunity to scale in to risk assets? Well, we've seen California shut down. We have seen borders closed around the world. We have seen a sharp increase in the amount of diagnosed coronavirus cases. Then there will, at some point, come a moment where investors say, okay, we're at 2017 levels. We know that GDP is going to contract, call it a trillion, maybe a trillion and a half dollars over the course of the next six months. Some of that, although not all of it, will be made back. The federal government and the Fed have combined to pump in a great deal of stimulus into the system. Maybe this is an opportunity to take a shot going long equities for a tactical or even a longer term play. Beyond equities, I think three other asset classes will be important to watch to get a sense of when that inflection point comes. And I'd point to municipal debt, corporate debt, and frankly, gold. The reason why municipal and corporate debt I flag is if you start to see a rally there, perhaps if not likely spurred by news that the Fed is going to try to expand its QE purchases to include munis and corporates, that would reflect a further backstop of broader financial markets and allow things to calm. The reason I include gold in that is this has been a very consensus trade for a lot of investors and hedge funds that if and when the entire developed world is back at the zero lower bound, printing reserves in order to fund their QE purchases, gold is the natural play. We've seen a big blowout in long gold positions as indicative of margin calls and broader market dislocations. If and when that starts to turn and we do see gold rip higher, that'll be important to watch. And I guess a flip side of that would be kind of the dollar as well. When we think about financial conditions, we think about not only stocks falling and the VIX rising, but sharp dollar appreciation is also very negative for financial conditions. The dollar has been extremely strong in the past few days, if not weeks. Sure, that has a lot to do with a broader dollar funding squeeze, but if and when we see an inflection there, that would help set the table for equities to bottom and start to bounce in a not-so-dead-cat fashion. Stay golden, Johnny boy. And that's coming from an outsider. In the week ahead, the Treasury market will have a few economic data points, but none that will be as relevant as the price action in other asset classes. We've been waiting for the equity market to bottom. We've been waiting for credit spreads to stop rising. And we expect that that weight will characterize much of the trading week ahead. The one economic data point that will be of particular relevance will be Thursday's release of jobless claims. Estimates are anywhere between a million and a million and three quarters as the unemployment ranks begin to swell. Now, this follows intuitively given the amount of layoffs that we have seen in the headlines. Whether or not the filings reach those numbers will be a function not only of the pace of layoffs, but also how effective the unemployment agencies are in processing the increase in demand. There are a few other economic data points. Durable goods will be notable, as well as personal spending. We've long maintained that any significant recession in the U.S. will ultimately find its origin from the consumption side, and that's what we're starting to worry about. We did see a disappointing retail sales print recently. That's data for the month of February. So as we make it into the spring, we'll be watching some early signs of personal spending being under pressure. 
We do get the inflation series on Friday as well, but frankly, realized inflation in the current environment is far less important than inflation expectations. As we go forward, we'll be focused on the survey data, given some of the current dislocations in the TIPS market. It's worth keeping in mind that the non-farm payroll survey week was the week which included the 12th of March, which is also the week reflected by the most recent jobless claims data, higher than expected, but nowhere near as dramatic as we anticipate seeing at some point. So as the April 3rd release of non-farm payrolls for March comes on the radar, keep in mind that while it might disappoint, it won't be as weak as we'll ultimately see as the coronavirus continues to impact the overall economy. As a theme, investors are continuing to watch the progression of the virus, including the number of both cases and fatalities. As that spreads through and we see the broader economic ramifications, watch for headlines from the big multinationals about downsizings and the reconfiguration of their labor forces. This will be an important indication of how deep the cuts will be and ultimately help us gauge how lengthy the contraction will be. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. In the reality of shelter in place, we hope our market musings provide a non-pharmaceutical treatment for insomnia, if nothing else. Sleep tight. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. 
no representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.